Everything here is community-led. There are people here, we're not sure how they got here or how we made this happen, but now there is a bunch of nerds that are really excited about containers and they want to contribute to this thing called Docker and they want to use it. There's people looking for talks to give. There's people looking for speakers to give talks. So let's just give them infrastructure and support and get out of their way and they're going to lead. And that's what happened. You are listening to the Kubelist Podcast, a show interviewing project maintainers for open source projects with a focus on CNCF sandbox, incubating, and graduated projects. Hi, I'm Mark Campbell. Together with Benji DeGroot, we publish the Kubelist newsletter dedicated to Kubernetes and the CNCF ecosystem. I'm the founder and CTO at Replicated, where we enable software vendors such as HashiCorp, Puppet, Harness, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software. Check us out at replicated.com. Benji is the co-founder and CEO at Shipyard, where they enable teams of all sizes to build, test, and deploy faster and more reliably via their ephemeral environment management platform. Get started with ephemeral environments at shipyard.build. The Kubeless podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or you would like to suggest a project, find us on Twitter at readkubelist. Finally, sign up for the Kubelist newsletter and read previous issues at kubelist.com. Hi, so today we're going to kick off a two-episode series with Solomon Hikes. Solomon is the founder of Docker and now has gone on as the founder of Dagger. On today's episode, the first part in the series, we're going to focus on Solomon's time at Docker, building Docker during their growth. I really enjoyed how open and honest Solomon was during this episode. Enjoy and check back for the next episode where we dig into Dagger. Welcome back to the Cubeless Podcast. Today we have Mark on the on the call with us, but also we're joined by Solomon Hikes. Solomon is the founder of Dagger, and before that, he was the founder of a company called Dot Cloud. You might have heard of it; became called Docker. Very excited about having Solomon on to to talk about all those things. Welcome, Solomon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's dive in to get us started. Solomon, will you kind of just tell us about your background, how you got started? Um, in software development and, and where it all kind of started for you? Sure. I grew up in France, even though I don't sound French. I am very French. And I sound this way because my dad is American, so I spoke English to him as a child. But yeah, so I, I went to high school in France and then just got interested in computers. I was a big Mac fan in uh, my early teens. I actually got in a school fight once over you know, the Mac being dead. I had to defend Apple's honor. It's ridiculous, but it's true. Well, what, what year was this, Solomon? What year was this? This was like 97, maybe? 96? So th- to be fair, the Mac was a little bit on life support at that moment. Oh, it totally was. Of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. wasn't dead yet. It was not dead yet. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, you, need, you need to be a rebel in some way. You need to tie your identity to being different in some way. Mike, that was, for me at the time, that was being the only Mac person. Anyway, so that was one aspect of me getting interested in computers. And then eventually after high school, I joined a relatively new uh, software engineering school in France called Epitech. It was very uh, confusing to the French people in general, because it, it, it was not the usual way to do engineering, but it was the right way to do software engineering, which is just a lot of practice, a lot of coding and acquiring theoretical knowledge through practice instead of years of reading books. And then in year three, you start coding for the first time, which is how traditionally French engineering schools approached programming. So I, you know, I just dove right in after high school and um, had a great experience with that school and then gradually started uh, getting obsessed with, um, you know, what would now be called the cloud. But at the time was, I think barely starting to be called that. But before that, I remember being excited about the concept of infrastructure, that instead of working on one computer at a time, one server at a time, you could actually deploy software to a bunch of computers, you know, as a cluster and, and start thinking of the, the, those computers as cattle versus pet, you know, pets, like that, that expression didn't exist yet, but th- that kind of thing, that's what I was interested in. So that's what got me pulled into a series of projects that eventually years later led to Docker. Let's talk about that a little bit. So you, you created Dot Cloud. Dot Cloud, um, you've been around for a while running Dot Cloud before Docker. I'd love to hear a little bit about the origins of Dot Cloud. You were it was a YC company? Yes. Yeah. It was um YC two thousand ten, summer two thousand ten. Okay. And before that it was um 
a sad attempt at bootstrapping a cloud computing software company out of a French suburb with zero experience or connection of any kind. So we were, we were really outsiders to an incredible degree, to be honest. I mean, it's people don't realize just how much of an outsider I was. <laughs> you know, I didn't know anyone. I mean, I, I knew how to program. Mm-hmm. But besides that, 2006, when I graduated, 2007, when I started working on that, you know, the project that would become that cloud. So that's three long years in France, just figuring things out, but with no connection to, you know, that Silicon Valley or the tech industry, really. Right. The entire ecosystem was, was extremely foreign to you. Yeah, even even working on a software product, you know, working at a company that published a software product, even that was a an unusual thing, unfamiliar thing. Did you have a job at all before you started the project that became DocCloud? Yeah, I had a job. Um, you know, I worked in cybersecurity initially and then did a bunch of consulting, uh, programmed a lot on my spare time, occasionally got a chance to program at work. But the thing with France is for a long time, if you were a programmer in France, you were most likely to work at a consulting company. Consulting is a really large and influential industry in France. I think it still is. And now you have, you know, the beginning of a tech product, you know, like a miniature version of Silicon Valley, that kind of ecosystem gradually taking hold and growing quite successfully. But consulting takes a lot of space. So you're coming out of programming school, you're thinking, okay, Will I work at a consulting company for a bank or will I work at a consulting company, you know, doing networking for a manufacturing company? So it's, it's a completely different mindset. Like a big cheese. There's like a cheese plant that you can <laughs> IT support. Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's some wine, there's a wine place in Bordeaux know. that needs to network a bunch of grapes. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So, anyway, so your experience, you're an outsider. You were an outsider. Um, I mean, that's really interesting. So you work on this project. And 2010 YC that was that was pretty early day that was very early days. I mean, yeah. I guess Reddit was like 2007 something like that. But I don't know if there had I don't even know if Dropbox was a big deal yet. So how did you find YC? You applied and then you just did you guys just get up and, and do the move to San Francisco thing? Is that what happened? Yeah, exactly. We moved to Mountain View to be to be precise. But yeah, me and this little founding team, you know, um, we're all based in France, and so. A few of them were sort of interested in joining, but it wasn't, we weren't enough of a real company to kind of take the jump, you know? And so I was kind of running out of options in France, you know, like I, I had borrowed a bunch of money and I was living at my mom's, stopped paying myself and basically failed to raise money in France. I uh, couldn't find anyone to write a check or understand what we were doing really. And we're doing consulting to pay the bills, but then consulting eats all the time. So YC was sort of the last chance uh, and we got in. There's a whole story there, and uh, you know how lucky we got. But we got in, and yeah, like you said, we packed our bags and showed up in Mountain View, and um, it never went back, basically. And, and Doc Cloud at the time. I mean, I was a Doc Cloud user. In fact, I was looking at this, and I found some old emails of me emailing Mark about Doc Cloud <laughs> um, a while ago. And actually, shout out to Ethan. Um, one of the people that works with Mark, who I also found some emails where I was talking to him about Dot Cloud. Um, but uh, so Dot Cloud was kind of like an application, right? It was like an application, like where I could select my own application, and then somehow that became Docker. Tell us, yeah. tell us about about YC a little bit, and then how when did that click, or how did Dot Cloud become Docker? Yeah, obviously before you changed the name. There's some stuff going on, and then, yeah. by the way, one other question is: Is were you like a hardcore like kernel guy, or like how did you find C groups? Like, where did you find C groups? Uh, why? Why was Google the only one that knew about C groups up until you? <laughs> okay, so well, first of all, was to, to start with the last question: the, the containers, you know, or the path to, to creating what is now known as containers, because now you hear, oh, containers existed the whole time, and you know, the, the Docker guys that just sort of slapped the, the nice. UI on it and some marketing. Totally not true, first of all. But uh, it was sort of a, a gradual step-by-step process of all of us kind of reaching the design that exists today. And definitely for me, that was the the thread 
for everything I did, starting from right after school. So I, I quickly became obsessed with that tech, you know, C groups. I don't think C, I think C groups maybe existed in a very rudimentary form. But when I started playing with containers on Linux, you had to patch the kernel. And it was either vServer, which was the oldest patch that I know of, like a lightweight server, you know, lightweight virtualization is what it was called. Or OpenVZ, which was definitely the, the, the most hardcore bleeding edge patch. It had way more, you know, it, I think it had better sandboxing, better security, and also way better resource accounting. I remember that. You could just track utilization of these mini servers um, in a bunch of ways. But you have to, that's, that's where containers were at on Linux. There was no LXC that didn't exist. That wasn't a thing. That came later. And I think C groups is barely, I don't remember when that, those patches started, but they definitely were not finished if they had started at all. So it was very early. And I just thought it was so exciting because it, it was a, it, a new layer, you know, a, a, a new layer to deal with the state of, um, of systems and managing the, the state of systems, looking at it and looking at it from the outside, you know? So for, for me, the starting point was, okay, we're, we're you, you can deploy and configure a bunch of servers as a whole. That's cool. That's a cool concept. Pretty mind blowing. You know, a whole cluster of computers, and that's the computer. That's cool. And then, okay, so how do you get those computers to the state that you want? Well, there's configuration management. That was a pretty new and emerging field, too. But all of them had to change the machine from the inside, right? You boot the server, and then you run whatever. At the time, it was like isconf or radmin D. I don't know if you remember any of those. I think they're long gone. Yeah, we do. And like, and you had tools like Puppet and Chef. Yeah, CF Engine was like the first mainstream one, I think. Yeah. And then later, Puppet came came out, and that was the brand new thing when I got started getting into it. That was very bleeding edge. Chef didn't exist yet. And then later, Chef came out, you know, as a sort of a, a different take on what Puppet was doing. That's my recollection, at least. But anyway, all those all those had in common. The tripwire was kind of related. You know, it was all about running a thing inside the machine to kind of figure out what the state of the machine was and how to get it to where you want it to be from the inside, you know, and, and the thing with containers is you could, you got something that was much more like an application artifact, more like a Java jar or, you know, an application artifact, except it was a whole system. So you could look at it from the outside and whatever code is inside, it wouldn't even know it's being looked at or being managed, you know? So that opened I don't know. It, it, as you can, it's still a fuzzy concept to explain now, but that was just such an exciting gut feeling, you know, a nerd's gut feeling. Uh, there's something really cool there, and I just want to do more of that. So that was 2007 to, I guess, now. <laughs> that's, the, that's the thread, you know? <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know what? Honestly, I've never heard someone describe it that way. And I think that's really interesting. The whole, like you, you're kind of defining it without turning it on, if you will. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that, I mean, obviously that's what Docker is. We all know what Docker is, but I do think that, that I didn't understand the context there of when you started playing with this stuff. What was dot cloud originally written in? What was it? What was the first version written in? So initially we were, I mean, we were trained in C and we were pretty low level, like systems programmers in general, like just from coming out of school, that was how we learned. But then we were quickly gravitated towards Python as the everyday getting stuff done, you know, prototyping, tooling, language. And so the first, the first prototypes, the first versions of all that container stuff that we built, you know, 2007, 8, 9, that was all Python. And dot .cloud, when we launched, the Heroku competitor, basically, which was sort of an evolution of that process, that was also all Python. We're a Python shop, actually all the way to the, to the Docker pivot in 2013, where we, you know, we took the core engine of our platform that was already all containers. And by then we had made the switch to LXC, which was again, very new, very unstable, very low quality. I don't mean the kernel features. I mean the user land tool. And so, because we were running at the time, this is, you know, later 2012, 13, many containers in production. But actual containers, you know, with a layered file system image and not just a bunch of C groups on, on the cluster, you know, but the closest thing to running Docker containers in production, that's what we were doing. And it was really painful because LXC was not stable. So we built this little tool to manage that, like polyfill on top of LXC. Mm -hmm. And that became just an internal component. And over time, that, that became our 
you know, container runtime. And then at some point, we just, you know, we made a bunch of decisions that led to spinning that out and that became Docker. And along the way, another set of decisions led to writing it in Go. Let's talk more about that pivot. Can you, like, you, you had this .cloud platform, kind of, you, did, you just described it as kind of competing a little bit with Heroku, and then this was an internal tool. When did you realize, or what was the, the motivation to say, you know what, this business that we've been building, that's, that's not the business that we're going to do. This t- internal tool, let's focus on this and get adoption. Yeah. Zooming out for a second, if you look at the arc, th- there were three parts to the Docker story. I guess now there's a fourth being written still. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the first is we're just a bunch of nerds in France excited about containers. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to build tooling that we don't even know if anyone cares, but it's exciting to us. Turns out it's almost exactly what Docker will end up being, you know, five years later. In this first incarnation, no one cares. So we actually, the first version of that cloud was actually open source, an open source tool to run and orchestrate containers on a, on a Linux machine, complete with versions, images, and a, and a way to move them around, et cetera, except it was a completely different tech stack. It was Python. It tried to put images in Mercurial, which is, you know, if you remember, like a Git competitor. So it tried to put the whole file system in source control. Anyway, it was just a first attempt. And no one cared because you had to patch the kernel, really. So just too much friction. So then we joined YC, just about as we're about to die. We moved to the US. And YC does one thing. This is 2010. So second chapter. Basically, they beat into us a basic sense of product. Hey, this tech is great. No clue what it's for. Can you solve a problem for people today? <laughs> Huh, what an interesting concept. <laughs> so we just we kind of went on this journey to learn the basics of, you know, what is now, I guess, the, the YC way. And it's really just, you know, startup 101, you know, solve a problem for people now. Don't over-engineer it. Don't overthink it. You know, just get a toehold and then keep iterating from there. So we if that process led us to basically pivot to the dot cloud that I think you used and that became a real business, which was basically a platform as a service. It was a direct Heroku competitor. So we, we handled deployment and hosting of the application all in one, super easy, would scale it, monitor it, blah, 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 kind of hands-off. Uh, and the big differentiator was we did it for many languages, not just Ruby, because at the time, Heroku was Ruby only. And there were a bunch of Heroku clones, but they were always for only one language. Because it was just, it was basically fancy managed hosting, mm-hmm. you know. So the whole stack was completely hardwired for that one language. Right. No Jitsu. Everyone remember No Jitsu? I remember that. Oh, yeah. I remember No Jitsu. I remember PHP Fog, Jangi for Django. <laughs> very specific, very specific platforms here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There were a lot of them. Yeah. And so uh, we came out and said, hey, multiple languages. And we got, we got lucky because Heroku sold just on the back of our launch. And so we just had a lot of buzz in this past space because, you know, people were thinking, oh, well, I mean, the, the simplified naive math is, okay, well, if the Heroku was worth $200 million with one language and .cloud has 10 languages, <laughs> you know, so that, okay, there must be answer something. So that got us all the way to 2013. And, and to answer your question, finally, when did we kind of decide, okay, we're not doing this business? You know, it was death by a thousand cuts. Because we, we slowly discovered that PaaS, Platform as a Service, is a bad business to be in. Or at least it wasn't at the time. It looks like some companies are trying again 10 years later. Uh, and it looks like they might be more successful this time. But at the time, you were basically a very thin layer on top of AWS. AWS at the time was still pretty young. So they had their their own issues. And you were kind of stuck between customer expectations that were pretty high because you're, you're kind of selling an all-in-one solution, right? We'll take care of everything. But on the other side, there's Amazon that can't really deliver the same thing to you. So what happened is sometimes things broke. And when things broke a little bit, then we could work around them. But a lot of times when things broke a lot on AWS, then we were just stuck sitting on our hands waiting for it to get unblocked like everybody else. And our customers, you know, gradually realized, okay, this is, this is very valuable to get going and be very productive because we had a great developer experience. We were great at getting your product started, 
But then once things got serious and you had a real application with real customers and you as the cust- as, as the DuckCloud customer were growing and scaling, then your expectations, uh, we just couldn't really keep up with them. And that made it harder to justify our margins. And so eventually what happened is people would one day just, just as they became a valuable customer, they would hire a full-time DevOps person. And that DevOps person would look around and say, let's go and build this ourselves on Amazon. And arguably they wasted a lot of cycles doing that, but you know, they still did it. So basically the whole past industry was VC subsidized lead generation for AWS. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good quote. I, I think that, uh, you know, I've shipyards been accused of being a pass in the past. But yeah, I, I don't know if it's changing, and I definitely think uh, uh, you know some of my best friends are DevOps people. I consider myself a DevOps person, but we all are going to rebuild everything and make it better, and it's going to be next week. We all, that's that's our <laughs> that's our superpower is to always think that that's easy to do, right? Uh, even the people that are building it. Uh, so it sounds like some of these patterns, uh, history repeating itself. It's pretty interesting. Before we talk about anything else, quick question: When Dot Cloud was a pass, mm-hmm. what was your orchestration and scheduling layer? Was that obviously it wasn't Kubernetes uh, or Swarm at the time, but <laughs> this high level, like what were you guys doing for all that stuff? Yeah, so it's really interesting because you know, remember we were a bunch of French people basically, so we were pretty bad at marketing, and you know, we were better at technology than marketing, let's say. And so one thing we were not super good at was just showing off all the cool tech we were building and just making the, the, the cool tech itself part of the marketing, you know, because, uh, you know, uh, when you're selling to engineers, engineers like to hear about the cool stuff you're building and how you scale it, et cetera. So the point is we had a lot going on. And I, I think uh, actually it's kind of a shame that it's not, not super well-known what that stack looked like because it was basically in the ancestor of what you would call today the CNCF stack. We had a miniature version of all of that because we had to invent all of it because none of it existed. Mm. And I, I think honestly, I mean, so it's a wasted storytelling opportunity and the story we got instead, I'm just going to decide right here and now to be transparent. <laughs> the story we got instead is Google invented everything. Then eventually the world caught up mm. and that's, you know, it's a fun story, but just it's not actually an accurate story. So you get you guys get the the other side of the story, which is that unless you happen to work at a company with tens of millions of employees that can mandate one giant monorepo with everything custom made from scratch, you know, your own build tooling, your own monitoring tooling, your own infrastructure management, all of it, then your options are basically very limited. You live in VM land, or actually you, you live in individual server land. And if you want to scale your application, you need things like Nagios for monitoring. You know, remember that? Oh, yeah. Monitoring the server or the many servers. Maybe you have lots of servers in Nagios because it could scale really well. But what it could not do well with was adding a bunch of nodes dynamically. That was not a thing. You had to manually write the configuration for each node you wanted to monitor. But we needed to monitor a bunch of nodes, like, and I don't mean like we're auto scaling VMs, so sometimes there's a new VM. I mean, like, every time any application scales up or down or gets one container rescheduled, you got to monitor that container. And so what we had was a Franken Nagios, I guess. <laughs> that was the first iteration. So we started from basically modified versions of existing production grade tooling. And then we just sort of instrumented it as best as we could. And then as things broke, we instrumented it some more. And then eventually, some of those pieces we re-implemented. And sometimes we open sourced the result. And so we did that for the RPC layer. So we had a gRPC ancestor. We did at the uh, network routing layer. So we had a, I guess you'd call it Istio... God. Like a service mesh. Before. Service mesh, yeah, exactly. Uh, a service mesh ancestor. The scheduling, we had, I mean, it was an in-house thing. So to answer your original question, we had a build service, logging. And this was all this was all Python before you even came up with a Docker file, basically. Yeah, it was all, yeah, exactly. It was all Python. 
except for the, you know, like Nagios, I don't know, I think it's Perl or whatever, but you know, the, all the, all the tooling you wrote was, was Python. Yeah. And so you guys really are horrific at telling a story about this. Cause this is the first I've ever heard that you guys had the entire scene. <laughs> we were, we were quite bad, but you know, that's the thing. People assume Docker was like a feat of marketing. And when Docker launched and took off, you know, we had one marketing person and he did a great job at adapting his name's Julian, because he had been hired to scale the online marketing of an online product called that cloud. And he was given a, t- a head count of, I think, four or five people to ramp that up. And then one day he learned that we were pivoting away from that and his whole team just got laid off because we had to lay off people to, to execute this pivot. It was a, you know, a painful, scary moment. Yeah. And so my point is we did not have, I mean, marketing came later. And it was purely reactive. The, the one thing that the Docker marketing figured out that was brilliant was basically everything here is community-led. There are people here. We're not sure how they got here or how we made this happen. But now there is a bunch of nerds that are really excited about containers. And they want to contribute to this thing called Docker. And they want to use it. And they want to meet in person to tell each other about how they use it. And they want a bunch of T-shirts now. They want to, you know, there's people looking for talks to give. There's people looking for speakers to give talks. So let's just unblock them, you know, give them infrastructure and support and get out of their way. And they're going to, they're going to leave. And and that's what happened. So that's the one thing we got right with marketing. Well, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. The whale, come on. The whale's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, the whale, yeah, the whale is awesome. Okay. Cause you got at least two things right, Solomon. Come on. Yeah, no, we did. And so th- to tell the story of the whale, first of all, I get zero credit for that. We had a, a designer at the time, also was working on dot cloud like everyone else, and uh, his name was Thatcher. And when we, when you know, we basically said, okay, we're pivoting. So everyone who's not working on this Docker thing, find something to do because we're that's all we're doing now. And so he, you know, worked on finding a logo, a bunch of among other things. And so we he ran a, a ninety nine designs contest. Actually, we had done that for the dot cloud logo before. And I loved the .cloud logo, by the way. It was great. And then we did it again for the Docker logo. And so Thatcher, you know, ran that. And he, he came up with the idea that it should be some sort of mascot. You know, it, would be, it should be a mascot. And then we had this whole process. You can actually go and look at the contest and look at all the, all the possible logos Docker almost had. It's pretty funny. We're going to find a link and we're going to put a link into that as well. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really funny. Okay, so Solomon. So, okay. So that was the <laughs> second part. Second part. of the journey. Yeah. And then obviously, I mean, just a quick hit here. Did you have customers? Were people using dot cloud? Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. We had customers. I mean, we were sort of, I remember we, we burned 300 K a month when we pivoted, we had 5 million in the bank. So we had primitive runway. It was more of a morale thing. Like, okay, where is this going? We're not differentiating anymore, but we did have customers and we were, it was very, it was a lot of hard work supporting them. And growth was painful and expensive. But yeah, I think we were probably around, I'm going to say 1 million ARR around that, you know. So that was the point at which the early version of Docker had the most amount of ARR. So then, sorry. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> no, not anymore. I was, yeah, it took a while for Docker to catch up to that. In terms of growth, yeah, in terms no, of growth, no, no, sorry. it was a, yeah, from the beginning, that was, that's, of course, that was, that's what was so different about it. So it's ironic here a little bit. Why you get to YC, you start off, you're like, okay, we're gonna build the coolest thing possible. I'm a nerd. This is mm-hmm. amazing. Look at what we can do. This is the dream for every DevOps person ever. Yeah. Then you get to YC, they're like, hey, build something that actually people need. <laughs> and you do that, and then you actually get some level of success with that. You raise money, you have customers, all these yep. things. Yep. And then you're like, Yeah, but I don't feel that good about myself. So I'm gonna now go back to what I was doing in the first place. Pretty and much. then it's this massive success. Yeah. Um, obviously with this taking off. And I, I do want to touch on the community building stuff a little bit. So for my recollection and understanding, um, obviously you open sourced all this stuff and then you had this amazing viral effect. And I can remember, I, again, I literally should go back and find this email between Mark and I where we're just like, oh my God, this is it. Oh my God, this is it. This is what we've been talking about forever. So you get to that point and then there was a little bit of controversy here and there. Um, and there's been some 
you know, I want to make a Zinedine Zidane reference, but I'm pretty sure no one knows who that is in our audience. That's a French football player who headbutted somebody um, in the World Cup, for those that don't know. Only the best footballer of all time. Yes, okay, yes, and he's <laughs> and according to the French, he's the best football. And again, this is not not for our audience. Our audience does not care about and by football we oh, mean soccer, by the way. You want drama. No, no, no. I just say <laughs> there was a little bit of drama. Okay, so there's been some critiques of Docker in the past. Um, and I do want to talk about that quickly. Um, you touched on it. The whole it's just a UX for container thing. I think we kind of already talked about that. But did you have anything else you want to say about that whole critique? Well, I, in a perfect world, everyone who misunderstands you would get to see exactly inside your head and get the full uh, story that you want them to see. But, you know, that's not how the world works. And so <laughs> I consider myself happy if I have my own story straight and I feel like I can make sense of what happened in my own words uh, and I can learn lessons. You know, what would I do differently? What, what do I think I did well? So that's a lot of work already. <laughs> so trying to convince everyone else on top of that is just too much. And, um, of course, you know, I, that's a lesson I should have learned earlier, by the way, you know, you can't make everyone understand and love you. And if you, if you try, you're going to be miserable your whole life. So it, it was a valuable lesson in telling a story that's compelling before someone else tells your story for you. So that, that's the valuable lesson there. And also just the, the main lesson is, Docker was just, it grew so fast and it became so important to so many people so quickly. And by many people, I mean users, potential customers, uh, and also a lot of potential competitors. It just, it was something that a lot of people were forced to pay attention to very quickly. And, you know, people are busy. They got agendas. They, they sometimes you're, you don't appreciate someone else setting your agenda for you. Like, oh, now I got to worry about this Docker thing. Like, what is that? <laughs> You know, so we became important to two very different groups of people, the people who were there because they wanted to and they were excited about Docker and the people who were there because they had no choice. And, you know, I I think everything else you can extrapolate from that. Usually what happens is you have people who really are here because they want to be here and the rest of the market who just could not care less and they will happily ignore you forever. You know, but we have this separate group, which they had to be here because of this sort of standardization viral loop where we just pulled everyone in and you had to, you, you had to have a response to Docker of some kind and some people resented it. Yeah. On the positive side though, like, I mean, you know, I remember early days of Docker, you know, replicated, we've been around for eight years, but even before that, like, I'm not going to go into the origin stories of replicated or anything here, but it was Docker that we were like, Oh my applications are portable. Like this is a new technology. And I think when we launched Docker was at like zero point, Five zero point six mm-hmm. early days, and just the community that you were talking about going to the dot cloud office and sitting on picnic tables there and having screens behind oh, yeah, you that showing, was so fun. yeah, like that energy. Like you know, my origins and in getting into like Docker were more like the excitement of it. Not I had to be there at all, and I think a lot of people here that that will be listening to this podcast hopefully like have <laughs> yeah. that positive memory of Docker. Like enables them to do stuff that they couldn't really do before. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that, and yeah, I mean that's very real. And I mean, I run into people all the time. I, I'm surprised. It's, it's only after I left Docker and I took some time off and, and started reconnecting with, you know, the, the broader community or, you know, just like doing things like we're doing now, just catching up and, and chatting that I, that I realized what you're saying. Oh, wow. This had a really strong impact, a really positive impact on a lot of people's careers. You know, it mm-hmm. created a lot of opportunities. And I mean, it created lots of opportunities for me. Uh, obviously, I mean, you know, I get invited to podcasts and all that. <laughs> but in parallel to that, since you were asking about that critique of Docker as a toy, there were many critiques over the years. You know, the themes kind of there were like a you know spring summer twenty fourteen story, and then there was <laughs> you know it's like a fashion uh, and and thinking about where that came from and the, the reason it got so much traction. So quickly, there was a negative narrative around Docker and, and that I think we handled poorly because we were just not prepared for it because we didn't understand. We had no frame of reference. Like why? Like if you don't like it, why are you here? You know, but the reason is because they're forced to be here, you know, which is why I was mentioning that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what made the Docker experience so crazy and unique is just how quickly it grew 
and how quickly it affected pretty much everyone beyond just the people who wanted to be <laughs> involved. <laughs> you know, that makes things very paralyzing. Yeah, I literally just checked my Gmail and I found something. I sent Mark an email in 2013 or 2014 where I was just giving all the links to the Docker stuff. Um, I will say personally for me, Docker has always been extremely positive. Um, and I think it has for almost everyone I've ever met. Um, there's always confusion at times. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lots of confusion. And the whole jump from the registry one to registry V2, like I don't yeah. want to talk about that. But but now we're just dredging up old stuff. But it, I'm just kidding. But what I would say is that it created this industry. It, the reason this podcast exists, the reason that CNCF is there, is because we finally were able to have accessibility to doing these like super cool things. Um, and Docker was about opening accessibility. And the coolest thing for me is when I meet a product person or a designer, someone that doesn't have any CLI command line experience, but they have a Mac. And I'm like, okay, you should just run this locally. And they're like so intimidated. And that's when I'll be like, okay, well, just install the, do this one line install thing and then just type Docker Compose up. And it just works. And all of a sudden, they're like, wait, what? This, and it just kind of like opens the door. I can't tell you how many people I've seen over the years that were not very technical or definitely did not have any DevOps or even CLI chops that all of a sudden knew how to run a server, quote unquote. Yeah. And that has just opened up the world so much because one of the things that I think was missing in the open source, in the GitHub ecosystem and all these different things was like, cool, the code was there, but how do I run it? Now, that's still a huge challenge today. It's not solved, yeah. but it is it is pretty awesome. And Solomon, I won't give you my spiel on Docker Compose, but I am uh, controversially um, a huge fan of Docker Compose still. And so I think that that is just, again, it's about accessibility. I think what Docker did was made it so accessible. I really want to talk about Dagger, your new project that we're about to talk about before we run out of time. But I do want to ask one last question a little bit, just because I'd be remiss not to. But basically, the last stage of you at Docker was right around the time that Kubernetes came to be a big player in the field. And what I've always found interesting is that I talk to a lot of folks and maybe people a little less familiar with the ecosystem. And sometimes people say, oh, we use Docker and they're referring to Kubernetes. And sometimes people say we use Kubernetes and they're referring to Docker. Mm. And they have become pretty synonymous to a lot of let's call it higher level <laughs> Forrester Gartner folks. Right. So just talk to us about when all of a sudden Docker kind of was like, it, the community took off. Everyone's like, this is it. And now other people are kind of coming in with like Mesos and all these other things and, and just the scheduling orchestration layer, the, the basically early dot cloud infrastructure, <laughs> apparently, became the next tool. And tell us about how, like what happened at Docker. And obviously there were some, some stressful times there, but just talk to us, you know, on a high level, like how that all went down and uh, kind of some lessons maybe you learned from all that. Yeah, sure. So yeah, there's a lot of, misunderstandings, I think, on, you know, what actually happened and also why, you know, what everyone's intent was at Docker and, and elsewhere, I think, because there was a lot of confusion about Docker in, in, in the first place. It was very new. You know, Kubernetes appeared pretty quickly, you know, as one of the dozens of projects that appeared very quickly, you know, in the Docker ecosystem. So that the first thing is, from our perspective at Docker, there was only one thing that mattered and that was trying to keep up with a Docker rocket ship that was accelerating more and more, again, led by the community. You know, it was just unlimited demand for all things Docker in every direction all at once. And, you know, it was like a fire hose that appeared overnight, right? So we were shipping this prototype. We're like, oh, let's just show it at PyCon to get a few more testers and then it leaked and then, you know, explosion and, you know, continuous explosion. For, for five years straight. And so one year in, you know, looking back, you say, oh, that's when Kubernetes happened. But at the time, there were like three of those launching a week, you know. There were at least 20 Docker orchestrators, and Kubernetes was one of them. And then there was networking to figure out, and logging, and storage. And I, in parallel, I was trying really hard to move Docker closer to developers so developers could actually use it directly because 
now it's kind of taken for granted that you have things like Docker for Mac and even something like the Docker CLI available for Darwin or Windows, right? But all those things were not obvious at all in the beginning because it started out as this Linux server thing, you know? Uh, so on top of addressing everything I just talked about, oh, and not to mention support for different layered file systems and, you know, getting Red Hat off our backs for supporting their old shitty rel versions, you know, and all of that stuff. That was all like demands, all that, you know, like, hey, we need this now, 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 now. And so everyone at Docker is in reactive mode, trying to keep up and prioritize demands and just keep people happy while driving towards an overarching plan, which was to finish the Docker platform, which was, you know, supposed to be a new way to architect and ship and run your application on top of this new layer of containers, right? It was just a very big puzzle and with a lot of missing pieces. And orchestrating containers across a bunch of machines, that was one of many, many pieces in that puzzle. You know, Docker Compose, right? We had this service composition thing in .cloud and we lost it when we spun out Docker. So we we wanted to bring it back. And the, the fig guys sort of were inspired by the original .cloud.yaml, did the fig.yaml, and then we acquired them, and that became Docker Compose. So, you know, that's the, the main thing. Kubernetes was not, like, the main topic. <laughs> you know, what Google was going to do and how cooperative they were going to be was a big topic. And things were looking good in the early days because they, you know, they had this LMCTFY project, you know, let me containerize that for you. Oh yeah. Which yeah, was yeah. sort of a low level user lands container runtime. And then they decided to merge that into Docker. So all the engineers, the awesome engineers who were working on that joined the Docker project and, you know, they became Docker maintainers and later container D and run C maintainers. And as far as I know, they're still happily doing that uh, with zero drama. So we, we were very eager to take that to the next level. And we thought, okay, well, we're, we got Google working with us anyway. So that's the, the perspective. Like there was just a million things going on. And the other thing that was going on was this split in the Docker community between two parts. There were infrastructure people and application people, you know, ops and devs just to simplify. And it was ambiguous who Docker was for. And that ambiguity was intentional because we wanted everyone to join this big tent that was a Docker community. So we wanted infrastructure people to be excited about, you know, running that on their server in production. And we wanted developers to be excited about using it every day to develop. And that was necessary because you needed to bridge those two worlds for Docker as a platform to make sense, right? If I'm packaging something as a developer and it can run anywhere, but no one wants to run it in production, then there's no point. And vice versa, if it's only an infrastructure component kind of hidden all the way below, then it's not really, you're not revolutionizing anything. You know, instead of uh, filling a triplicate form to get a VM, you're just going to fill a triplicate form to get a container, you know, from the same IT department and nothing's going to change. So, you, you, you know, we needed both. And so that was double the exposure because those two communities are just very different. And so developers don't, didn't care about orchestration, for example. They cared about service composition, right? So for developers, Compose was more important than Kubernetes. By the way, still true today, again, developers could not care less about Kubernetes because it's an infrastructure thing, right? Infrastructure people care about orchestration. They need it. Developers don't. And so I think over time, the split between those two communities became more visible to us, and we kind of started understanding the differences between those two audiences and the main thing we understood, or at least I understood, and I think I failed to communicate that understanding <laughs> to all of Docker, is that generally developers are loving us more and more, us Docker at the time, right? And the infrastructure community is just accommodating our presence, but the Docker brand appeals first and foremost to developers. It does not appeal to infrastructure people. And it's only going to get worse because Red Hat and VMware are the infrastructure people's brands. They, they are very, very threatened by Docker stealing that. And, you know, we're building these products to compete with them. And so we're making them even more scared. So they're going to just go more and more negative. And just, you know, you're going to have a bunch of salespeople and marketing departments 
manufacturing FUD around the Docker brand and, and it's going to work. Infrastructure people will be less trusting of Docker over time. And, you know, first it'll be about security. Then it'll be, it's not modular enough. Then it'll be, it's not standardized enough. Then it'll be, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is. But it's always going to be something because you're swimming against the current. So my general thrust was, let's go towards developers because they love Docker and they, they, they can't get enough of it. And, and let's just over time accommodate the infrastructure ecosystem by basically complying with uh, very reasonable demands. Like if you're in, if you're running stuff in production, you don't want a big monolith. You want, you know, specialized components and you want them to be well scoped and you want them to be stable and you don't want surprises, you know, so that, that's totally fair. And I, you know, by and large, that's what we did. So now if you look at the infrastructure stack today, it's pretty good. You got run C with the OCI spec, you know, it, it's not perfect, but it is what it is. And then you got container D, which is the dominant runtime. That's Docker. That's a Docker's project. And then you got Kubernetes on top of that, you know, that's pretty dominant orchestrator, obviously. And then you got an ecosystem of infrastructure facing things on top of that. And then you got developers completely over there. We're playing with Docker Compose and Docker Desktop and Bridging that gap is still a problem, but I'm sure it'll be figured out. Anyway, I've been talking forever, but that's there's a lot of context, basically. At no time did it feel like Docker versus Kubernetes. You know, it felt like we were just gradually being pushed away, but it made sense why. And, you know, I think we communicated poorly at times around that. But it all kind of made sense, you know. And the biggest existential threat to Docker, which almost killed the company, by the way, was not Kubernetes. It was a failure to ship a commercial product that was really compelling to a buyer. And the reason for that was lack of focus. You know, you had a bunch of teams, a bunch of VPs, just each building their own thing. And uh, with unlimited budget, by the way, because we were just growing so fast, you could raise as much money as you wanted and hire as much as you wanted. So you just had a very typical execution problem. That's what almost killed Docker, not not Kubernetes. It's very interesting to hear it from your perspective, and and I think that that's a pretty good insight of like you know that's really helpful to understand. Like you guys were always just catering to developers, and honestly, that checks off every box for me because as a developer, I love Docker. As an infrastructure person, there was times where we had a tough relationship. Yeah, but but I will say that that you know the reason. It didn't have to be that tough. The reason it became, I think there was always the need to have a pragmatic conversation with, with sometimes, okay, let's get real. Here's what we need. But I think what caused drama and sometimes burnout, like, you know, I had engineers at Docker who burned out and left. And I, in some cases burned out from the tech industry because of the toxicity that was sent our way. And that was not necessary. And it didn't come from, pragmatic ops people that were asking tough questions. You know, those are always there and they're always reasonable questions. And I think by and large, I think the team did a good job at, at addressing them. And over time, things got better, you know, but on top of that, you had a lot of unnecessary drama that came from vendors trying to sell stuff to those same operators and the tactic they chose to sell them stuff was to throw a bunch of vitriol at Docker. And that was not warranted. And I, I, you know, that's a choice that you make at some point as a leader to do that or not to do it. And now I know that's a choice that's available to me. And we only did that once. And I'll I'll tell that story because it's important to me. One time there was a Red Hat summit and we were there. I mean, we're always there. But this one time we did, uh, we had this uh, illustration with like a, We'd say like accept no imitation. We had this little, basically a drawing making fun of the Red Hats, Red Hats fork of Docker, because they forked it and had a bunch of stupid Red Hat specific stuff that crashed and then caused security bugs, and then they blamed it on Docker. It was the most annoying thing ever. But anyway, the way to deal with that is you just take it and then you know occasionally you bitch about it on a podcast or whatever. But then you just you know you go out in the market and you talk about how your product's great and what problems you solve. That's the way to do it, I think. And and if you look at how we communicated, that's the way we did it to a T, except for two things. One, that one drawing one time, which if I had to say we wouldn't have done it, I'll just say that. 
And then separately, I had a bunch of meltdowns on Twitter. That was totally me. <laughs> but, you know. So it's Twitter's fault. It's Twitter's fault. No, okay, but I, so, okay, so we can just wrap this whole thing up as any type of confrontation. Yeah. It was Twitter's fault. Because I will say that's a good, that's a good thing to, to blame. Yeah. I, I just, it's just the thing about, I think, infrastructure people had good, valid criticism of early Docker. And that criticism was addressed in a gradual and pragmatic way. And I think today people happily run container D and run C, you know, with Kubernetes on top or whatever the setup is. And that was done in great part because Docker enabled that. And I, I wish Docker got more credit for that part. Because if you remove the drama, those sets of issues resolve themselves in a, in a pretty good way in the end. Well, Solomon, as someone that is still heavily in the container world, I can tell you that a lot of this history that we're talking about, I think it's pretty much forgotten. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, everyone loves Docker. <laughs> yeah. Everyone loves Docker. Half the people listening to this can be like, what is he talking about? Yeah. But yes, guys, for those that weren't around, there was, some, there was a little bit of, where was, we had some nerd drama. Um, we had a little bit of Real Housewives of Docker or Real Housewives of, <laughs> yeah. of Kubernetes go or whatever yeah. it was. Uh, Real Housewives of Container Runtime. I think that would be the, the right terminology. Yeah. But there's a lot of lessons learned from that. And what I can tell you right now, and I, th- I think Mark would agree with me on this, is like pretty much everyone loves Docker. We don't like when they make us pay for stuff, but we're also like, <laughs> okay, you know, you earned it. Yeah. One question, is it cube cuddle or is it cube control? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the correct answer is cube cuddle. Cuddle is the right answer. Okay. I ask everybody this, and I'm very this – is, this is the thing that I'm opinionated about. It is cube cuddle. It is not cube control. It is not cube CTL. It is cube cuddle. So can we get Solomon Hike's official endorsement of that, please? Oh, yeah, sure. I endorse that officially. All right. I'm going to need you to say it. <laughs> I endorse cube cuddle. Correct. All right. We got the sound bite that we needed. <laughs> That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic, head over to kubelist.com. I'm Mark Campbell, CTO at Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com. My co-host is Benji DeGroote, CEO at Shipyard, where they enable isolated ephemeral environments on every code change for companies of all sizes. Check them out at shipyard.build. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor in developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. And finally, don't forget to sign up for the Kublist weekly newsletter and read previous issues at kublist.com.